You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to your one consistent beacon of truth here at the conservative conscience, powered by Westwood One Podcast Network at Conservative Reviews Headquarters. It is Tuesday, late Tuesday, November 27th. Happy birthday, Zach, my youngest kid. He's uh, four years old today. He was actually born four years ago on Thanksgiving Day itself. And uh, what a blessing from God. What a kid full of spunk. Um, Even though he always gives me these colds and sore throats all the time, so my throat is killing, which is why I didn't wait until tomorrow. I'm I'm really scared that I'm going to lose my voice. So for, for today, I just – I'm kind of bustling inside just to get a bunch of things out. And I apologize if I'm going to keep coming back to some of the same topics. I know there's so many issues I want to focus on um, that I feel we haven't given enough attention. And let me say this. There's a lot of issues for which I don't even have to sell out my soul. I could totally work in concert with my pre-existing principles and also be on the side of the president. And there's a lot of issues like that, where certainly on paper, he's saying the right things, wants to do the right things often, and just the issues where he gives into the swamp, I could just ignore. I could totally do that. Everyone of power in this movement, everyone is supporting this evil, evil jailbreak, which is the work of Satan. And I can't get off of it. You know, like it says in the end of Proverbs, I believe it's uh, probably the end of chapter 29, verse 26. Many seek the countenance of a ruler, but the judgment of a person is from the Lord. I don't need an audience with the president. I don't need to be invited to, you know, the president's Christmas party, the president's get together, whatever for conservatives that he has every so often. Um, I don't need that. I need him to do the right thing. I need him to take his good intuition on most issues and actually execute it. Because we all know that ultimately we're going to have to defend our views before God. And this bill retroactively releasing, early releasing, and cutting sentences prospectively, and the mixture of the two, which, by the way, is very dangerous because it creates a cascading velocity of leniency because the system builds on points, on criminal points, that the more of a record you have, the more you get. Then the more you reduce criminal sentencing, the more you don't get at a time of the worst drug trafficking crisis in American history. The worst illegal alien crisis where many of them in federal prison are illegal aliens. When what they want to do with this bill is so evil and what they want to pile onto it. It's not about a bill. It's about a movement. I want – someone's got to speak up for the victims of crime, the victims of illegal immigration, our combat veterans that are being prosecuted, which we'll get to later today. Our combat veterans or active duty military that are being placed in meat grinders to die on the sword of Allah, refereeing tribal Islamic civil wars while engaging in uh, social work and urban renewal in Baghdad, Kabul, Mogadishu, Raqqa, Sana'a, you name it. Someone's got to stand up for the forgotten man. And that's the thing. I don't care. Ultimately, the judgment of a person is with God, not the president, not anyone in power, not any donor. And someone's got to point this out. What's starting to happen, like I noted earlier this week, and I have a big piece out today 
A lot of it I spoke about on Monday, some of its new information, about 10 new bullet points on this bill. And I, I, could, I could write a book on, just on this bill. But you know the problem is this piece was already 1,700 words. So I was like, uh, this is way too long already. Um, so I just had to stop showing all the cases where the bill was written to let out as many people as possible. And now they're just lying. They're just saying, no, it doesn't do anything. Then you have all these people attacking us now saying, you, Daniel, are undermining the president. When really this was the president's lifelong view. There is nothing I am saying on criminal justice, on drug trafficking, that the president himself hasn't said from his books to his speeches to his campaign events to his addresses on drugs and crime as president right up until Jared Kushner lied to him and got him on this. And I think there's no enigmas to how this came about. Oh, like as if the president somehow supports this. No, he doesn't. Everyone knows that you could go up to him and tell him, you know, oh, the bill does this and he'll support it. You know, you want to talk about the president's agenda on jailbreak. Let me read to you what this president of the United States said just this past March in New Hampshire. State ravaged by the heroin crisis, other drugs. And uh, this is just eight months ago. Just eight months ago. Here's here's what he said. I'm sorry for the sniffling here. I really apologize. Uh, uh, I know it's a little bit annoying, but just bear with me. Here in New Hampshire, I applaud all of the drug enforcement agents and law enforcement officers who recently coordinated Operation Granite Shield an 18-hour enforcement action targeting drug traffickers that resulted in the arrest of 151 people. These are terrible people, and we have to get tough on those people because we have all the blue-ribbon committees we want, but if we don't get tough on the drug dealers, we're wasting our time. Just remember that. We're wasting our time, and that toughness includes the death penalty. You know, it's an amazing thing. Some of these drug dealers will kill thousands of people during their lifetime, thousands of people, and destroy many more lives than that. But they will kill thousands of people during their lifetime, and they'll get caught, and they'll get 30 days in jail, or they'll go away for a year, or they'll be fined. And yet, if you kill one person, you get the death penalty, or you go to jail for life. So if we're not going to get tough on the drug dealers who kill thousands of people and destroy so many people's lives, we are just doing the wrong thing. We have got to get tough. This isn't about nice anymore. This isn't about committees. This isn't about let's get everybody and have dinners, and let's have everybody go to a Blue Ribbon Committee and everybody gets a medal for frankly talking and doing nothing. This is about winning a very, very tough problem, and if we don't get very tough on these dealers, it's not going to happen, folks. It's not going to happen, and I want to win this battle. End quote. As part of this bill that Trump has been fooled into supporting, it early releases... Almost all of these people. In fact, the more we look at the bill, there's a number of loopholes that will rope in assault, robbery, murder, all sorts of things in some situations. But drug traffickers, for sure. I mean, that's the whole point of the bill. They they said this up front that they want to let them out. They always should be locking these people up. Trump took the Jeff Sessions view. And now suddenly I'm the one from Mars. I'm the one not following the president's agenda. Are you kidding me? With that, I want to go through some more things in this bill. If there's one provision, one provision of this bill that truly demonstrates the insidious motivation behind this effort, this agenda, including this bill. So now, one of, one of the things it does is it massively expands what's called the safety valve. There's a dirty little secret that really almost from day one, not day one, but a few years after the mandatory minimums went into effect in the 90s, we passed the safety valve, which brought all sorts of discretion to judges in all sorts of ways, particularly for first-time offenders, to avoid the mandatories. And indeed, most of them do. They're being used more now than ever. And I would argue it's already jailbreak. It's already – the pendulum has already swung the other way. And this is the single biggest point people miss. 
I didn't even get to the point I wanted to make, but now I'm making another point, but it's still important, important here. Often what happens is it's very hard to etch a certain t- meme, a certain principle in the consciousness of the public. But then once it's there, it's hard to get rid of it. So dishonest people feast off of an outdated, obsolete meme when the opposite is already true. So there was this perception we're locking up too many people for simple possession. A, that never occurred in federal prison. It was in state prison. And that was literally 13, 15 years ago. The last decade, the pendulum has way swung the other way, and we've already overcorrected. And you're seeing the results. So that's already under current law. It's kind of similar to like, again, you talk to any, anyone could get up and give a speech and say, there are doctors are overprescribing pain medication. And it will resonate because it's like, yeah, that sounds very true. And it, it's, it's very possible it was true a decade ago. Something has happened in between. The pendulum swung the other way. It's the same thing with what they're doing in foreign policy, saying that we should side with Turkey and Qatar against Saudi Arabia because, dang, those freaking Saudis are a bunch of terrorists. Well, you're feasting off of an old meme. That was when they were. Now the government is a guy who is certainly not a great dude, but you know he's fighting the terrorists. Again, it's like saying let's go bomb Japan in 1960 because of the emperor and Pearl Harbor. Well, things change. So anyway, we have the safety valve. And um, only 12% of drug traffickers fill out their sentences. We already have numerous, um, numerous, numerous safety valves. I mean, I'm talking about, again, anyone, to the extent drug traffickers are nonviolent first-time offenders... Believe me, they are all getting that, which is why – see, a lot of people are asking me so, – someone on staff asked me, Daniel, why wouldn't they just – if they badly want this passed, just fix the provisions that we're calling out? And what I'm saying is they can't because then that would expose the lie that they would have to say, OK, only those that are first-time offenders just for drug possession didn't have a robust criminal record before – um and some white collar crimes it would barely affect anyone because they're not in federal prison the federal prison population has gone down by 30 percent not not the rate of incarceration that's even more in raw numbers with the population growing that's the existing population obama let them all go and certainly the new people coming in it's like the people that trump was talking about in new hampshire they're the worst of the worst the whole culture and prosecution now, they're not going to go after these people in the federal system initially. They won't be caught dead doing it. There's a stigma against it, for better or for worse. That's just how it is. So, um, so anyway, you have this safety valve. Now, one of the, the whole point is that it was for first-time offenders. All right, you could escape the mandatory, let's say, you know, ten-year mandatory with drug trafficking of of you know a certain weight of 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 um of drugs. So that was, and, and again, it's working just fine. Well over a hundred thousand people have uh, been recipients of this leniency since the nineties. So this is a uh, very very simple. Part of what the bill does is we focused a lot on the back end jailbreak. The early time credits, the early release. That's the house passed so-called first step act. But they merged it with title 1 of the long standing Senate judiciary bill, Lee Durbin, Grassley Grassley used to oh my gosh, he invade against this bill beyond belief for years and then signed on to it. Um and we have, you know, Google Daniel Horowitz, Chuck Grassley hypocrisy crime, and you'll see all the speeches I link to them. So this bill reduces all the mandatories, like, you know, it ends three strikes and you're out. So in other words, three strikes and you're out law was life in prison, um, on third drug 
trafficking offense. I mean, this is a guy, again, irremediably broken. He, it, it flies in the face. They reduced it to 25 years, and, and fine, whatever, okay. But, you know, you could debate that, but don't don't tell me it's first-time offenders. It reduces the mandatory for the second time from 20 to 15. Um, and then the bill lowers the standard for what is defined as a drug offense in order to trigger the mandatory sentencing in the first place. So he, here's the key, meaning it's not just that it reduces the number of years. It gets rid of the mandatories altogether through the back door. See, they used to count any prior felony, state or federal conviction, punishable by more than one year in prison um, as a way of saying, no, you're a career criminal. And it makes a lot of sense. Okay, so you know, you're know you a first-timer. We'll give you the safety valve. You're not. We won't. What this bill does is it requires – and this is what's very important here. Watch the footwork, the fancy footwork. It requires that the prior conviction be punishable by more than 10 years in prison and that the criminal had actually served at least 12 months for that conviction. See – Normally, a sane person, if you're trying to do what's right and trying to weed out, okay, who's violent, who's not, who's a career criminal, who's, who could we give leniencies to, you would look at the, the severity of the conviction, not how much time they serve because we know we have all these jailbreak programs and they often don't serve them or they, the big thing is they plead down because like we said, it's so hard to nail them on the worst convictions. You know, 99% of the time, it's under – Sentence it's underpunished because rarely does the conviction overstate what they did. Usually it understates because we usually we, we can't prove, you know, at least in in the structure we have, and and, and it's worth it for the prosecutor to to agree to the plea deal. So there's an endless ream of violent repeat offenders who successfully secured plea deals. We see this all the time. I see this when we talk about this with uh, the aggravated fel- felonies for criminal aliens. That, you know, let's say legal immigrants, you know, so not an illegal, but a legal immigrant who's a criminal, um, you know, if he's legal immigrant, he's not subject to deportation unless there's a certain threshold of a criminal record. And what happens is they know how to plead down just enough. And we've seen cases where guys were arrested and charged initially with all sorts of assaults and battery and break in and larceny Um 10 different counts over a period of 10 years. But each time they plea it down just below the threshold and it doesn't trigger deportation. So there's a similar thing here with triggering the mandatories that a lot of them, you know, so a lot of typical aggravated assault in the state system, it would be punishable by five to seven years. But often they won't, they'll wind up serving less than a year because of the plea arrangement. So they're completely exempt from the mandatory minimum on the subsequent offense. It completely erases it. You would never put such a provision there if you you are trying to narrowly identify those that are low-risk, first-timers, not career criminals. And again, this is not just some sort of anomaly. This is the rule, not the exception of what you have in the federal system, they go after people with robust arrest records, um, charges, sometimes convictions, but then it's, you know, all sorts of ways they get out of it. So that's a way to totally avoids the mandatories in addition to just reducing them. All right, okay, so you reduce them a few years, but it's worse than that. Now it gets worse. So one of the things is we said that you have to have a minimal rap sheet in order to get the safety valve to avoid the mandatories. So this bill broadens the safety valve in several ways. It includes people who have up to four criminal history points. And that that could be very problematic, but it's worse than that. Even with a more extensive rap sheet. So the guy could have like 10 different things of three points. A lot of different assaults. Tons of drug trafficking in there. He's eligible. He's eligible 
if the judge believes that that the guy's you know rap sheet quote substantially overrepresents the seriousness of the defendant's criminal history or the likelihood that the defendant will commit other crimes. Okay. Now you guys know how often we talk about judges and out of control crazy judges. You're now giving these very vermin who believe that our immigration laws are immoral, our criminal justice laws are immoral, these nutcases. You are giving them the power with the flick of a wrist to essentially take almost anyone brought in on drug trafficking that has a massive rap sheet. These are the worst gangbangers. And they could totally avoid the mandatories. Totally avoid the mandatories. This is page 67 to 68 of the bill. If you just Google, you know, Senate Judiciary Committee um, website and you see it's I still think it's the front thing. The first step back, they'll call it that. Um, It's a 103 page PDF, page 67 to 68. It's under inadequacy of criminal history. It's within the safety valve provision, which is section 402 of the bill. So this is section 402G1. And what's amazing is I went back into my notes on the original 2015 bill that I looked at, and they made this even worse. See, this provision then, they did have like three or four hoops for judges to jump into that they kind of had to demonstrate and prove and certify different things in order to escape the mandatories. But that was all part of this thing. And um, it, uh, and again, and this is for people, you know, convicted of trafficking large quantities of legal drugs. It it had a lot of criteria that the judge had to consider, um, you know, when granting the leniencies. That's all out. I, I I called some friends that were working on this. You know, I said, "Am I missing something?" It's just this provision is very crisp. The court may, upon prior notice to the government, waive subsection F one. Right, this is the you know mandatories. If the court specifies in writing that the specific reasons why reliable information indicates that excluding the defendant pursuant to subsection, meaning if you exclude him from the safety valve. It substantially overstates the seriousness of his criminal history. Notice what it says. All they have to do is notice. There's no like approval from DOJ or attorney general has to agree. They just have to issue prior notice to DOJ. And then, right, I believe this guy is is not that bad. They all believe that. And you're going to have the weight of the political universe, the same people lobbying us. They're going to lobby the judges. It's one-sided. This is something I didn't even think about. Because I was focused mainly on the back end. I forgot, and many of us have forgot, they, they brought on the sentencing reduction. But it's not just reductions. It's avoiding the mandatories altogether with the back-ended expansion of the safety valve to include all sorts of people with a criminal history, and then an extra provision essentially allowing judges to just almost waive it all for so many people. So it's not even just drug traffickers anymore. And again, this is what we're talking about in the federal system. Even if you believe there's a couple people here and there you don't think belong there. How do you write something like this when you know it's going to rope in all these people? Boggles the mind. But facts just don't don't matter anymore. And again, you you put this together with the back-end sentencing where you get 15 days of good time credits per 30 days 
Plus, they added on like an extra seven days a year you get for good behavior. Um, so that lops off a little bit more than a third of the sentencing. And you could go into this tedious supervised provision. And also, there's a whole other provision with the drug traffickers. There's already a jail pro- jailbreak program that allows them to take off 15% of their sentence to leave early. So what's interesting is a lot of these mandatories, these reductions, they're coming off of not a percentage of the total sentence, but of the existing jailbreak programs. And that's why you have to have a hearing to study the amalgamation of the front end and back end provisions. One of the things you're going to hear is, well, what do you mean there's been no hearings? Well, the, you know, this the, it passed the House and then the sentencing part passed Senate Judiciary. So there's no reason we can't just merge the two and put them on the Senate floor. But, I mean, that's a big problem when you merge all these provisions. And I'll be honest with you, I'm still studying it. The math it gets very complicated of all the different leniencies of the sentencing and the discretion with the judges and the back end and what the prison wardens can stop and what they can't stop. And I mean, you, you got to really score the typical case you have in a federal level and, and see how deep this cancer runs. I mean, how bad the person can be and get some of this stuff. It's pretty bad. Again, I want to discuss substance and all of it is platitudes. You saw Tom Cotton had boom, 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 point by point thing in National Review. And today, National Review published Mike Lee's rebuttal. It's all virtue signaling. This is part of my Christian faith. It's part of first principles. Oh, okay. I mean, and that's another thing. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish. I'm not a Christian, so I can't, you know, I mean, he's Mormon, whatever, but I can't speak for him. I can speak for myself. I don't understand the morality of people on immigration, on crime on foreign policy, on the just laws of warfare. I just don't understand it. Anyway, I've gone a little bit too long here. But we'll link to our piece in show notes. But anyway, here's the capstone of the existing safety valve. There is a provision that says, insert... Meaning, so there's a bunch of people that get the safety valve. Insert on page, this is on page 67, section 7503 or 7506 of title 46 after 963. That's how legislation is written, by the way. So it won't say, okay, this creep is let out. Well, what category of criminals of the criminal code is now included in the safety valve? You look it up, you know who those people are? These people are narco-subs, narco-submarines. What, one of the things you have is um, almost all of the meth and heroin and a lot of the fentanyl, even LSD, other stuff, comes in through the land border with Mexico. But the majority of cocaine, some of it comes through the border, a majority of it is maritime, and the majority of it is not from the Mexican cartels, it's from the Colombian cartels, and as we've noted many times in the show, Hezbollah is intimately involved in that trade, and their massive funding has allowed them to be so enriched that they literally have enough money to purchase their own fleet of submarines. I kid you not. They're called narco-subs. You could Google it and see a lot of articles on that with the Coast Guard catching them. So they deliver all sorts of cocaine through these submarines. These provisions of the federal code are the ones dealing with the crew and the drivers of the narco subs on behalf of the freaking Colombian cartels and Hezbollah. Okay, so these these schmucks are like, we're locking up people that just were caught with a dime bag of marijuana. Uh, you know, he really he was a good family guy. And, you know, this is really an act of love because he wanted money to support his family. No, no, no. This is not some schlepper from the Bronx who needed money to go uh, and, and somehow got involved in, in, in peddling some marijuana. You don't become a freaking driver of a submarine for the Hezbos and, and cocaine. But this is a provision that was carved out. It's explicit, meaning the other provisions, the other violent people, it's more like by default. Meaning, by now not blocking it off, so then by default, anyone who's not excluded is eligible for the programs. And we talked a lot about that on Monday. I have that in my article. 
This is a provision they went out of their way to add by inserting Section 7503 right to narco subs. Who the hell would lobby for that? That means there's someone at the lobby for that. You're not going to hear this anywhere else. Anywhere else. I haven't even scraped the surface of this bill. You know, there's all sorts of issues in prison. It mandates close to 600 hours a month of um, phone time. They get phone time, right? So this is um, trying to see the, the section of the bill here. So, yeah, sorry about that. Um, anyway, it's, if you add up the number of prisoners, it would be something like 1.2 million phone hours a month. You understand that the prison wardens need to monitor that. They have to monitor. It. It's very dangerous. I mean, talk about gangbangers, the hits on them. And again, this bill recognizes the danger to them by allowing them to stow away their personal weapons at work so they can literally walk into the parking lot in their home and they won't have like, you know, the fellow cartel members of friends of the guys in prison waiting for them or the people that were released waiting for them. They don't provide the funding for them to do this. You need more, more. I mean, even if you agree with this, you would need more wardens to deal with this. It's very dangerous. That's a whole nother issue. Also, one of the things they did that was amazing and I promise this will be the last thing we'll move on to other issues. But so we, we spoke about how the recidivism programs, you know, I love how they just, yeah, these are proven anti-recidivism programs are, are literally nothing but a figment of their imagination. Quote, productive activities, anything they define as productive. And it's like, you know, Mike Lee's like Tom Cotton's wrong when he says it could be watching TV. The prison wardens aren't going to let them do that. Really? What about when DOJ is controlled by the Democrats or Mike Lee type of Republicans? Who do you think is writing these programs? It's the higher education institutions and nonprofits. I'm, I'm quoting from the bill. It's these very groups doing it. So naive. So naive. Anyway, so they're a farce from the get-go. But so the thing is, it's supposed to designate them as low level, and then anyone who's low level is eligible for the programs. Okay? They're eligible for the programs. And now, like we said before, these people believe that everyone is low level. Um, they believe all these people are low level, and they're going to be designating them as such and going to be pressuring DOJ to designate them as such. But What's interesting is I noticed on page 39 of the bill, I just noticed this last night, it says that they should prioritize the productive activities category for the low level and the anti-recidivism programs for the mid to high level. I got to give them credit. This is a brilliant provision. It also reveals the insidious nature of what they're doing. See, what it allows them to do is have a great talking point of appearing to be actually very tough and good when in fact it sows the seeds of an even bigger jailbreak. One of the things, the many comparisons to Amnesty and the Gang of Eight is that what, what they do is they have what I call hook amnesty, where you create a certain thing in statute that creates a legal, political, and cultural velocity of leniency that creates momentum for further amnesties that it could only grow but can't go backwards. It's kind of like a ticking time bomb. And what they did is they have, you know, even though they say only lower level could get it, the mid and, and high level risk, even under their own designation, they they um par- could participate in these programs. Now they don't get the the time credits for it. Now, so it's a brilliant brilliant talk point. Look, see, even these people eventually, most of them are going to be let out, and we need to prepare them for the world. And these are magical programs that will prepare them. So, look, we're tough. We're making them participate, and they're going to participate. They're going to be good, and this could be good for public safety. They're going to be better citizens. And you know what? And these people were not even giving them early time credit credits. Guess what? Then once you rope them into the programs, 
it sounds like you're being tough. They could now come back six to 12 months later and say, look at all these people. Not only are they serving forever in jail, they're, they're working their butts off on these anti-recidivism programs, and they don't even get credit for it. It's time we give them credit. Boom. Brilliant, brilliant provision. I got to give them credit. That's a good one. So that's jailbreak. We'll keep you up to date on that. <sighs> Talk about perverted morality. A lack of sense of justice. You know, I was going to talk today about Army Sergeant Leandro Jasso, 25-year-old member of the 75th Ranger Regiment, great, you know, great regiment there, who was killed in Afghanistan, Afghanistan's Nimroz province over the weekend, supposedly by friendly Afghani fire. But then, before I got a chance to talk about that, the news broke today that three more Marines were killed from a roadside bomb. All for nothing. You know, I remember 15, 16 months ago when Trump, against his better judgment, that's a quote from Trump himself, agreed to these broken generals that he brought in his administration to double down on Afghanistan. And there were people saying, no, you don't understand. This is a new strategy. This, Daniel, this is a new strategy. They're, they're not going to be in harm's way, taking risks. The Afghanis are going to lead. And I pointed out, I pointed out that at the time that this is the worst of both worlds. Because, you know, there's one thing to just be out of the theater or in the theater on offense, engaged in combat. But the worst is to be precariously in a combat theater not engage in combat, but engage in social work and having the Afghanis take the lead, lead us in, take the lead in, in the sense of leading us into um, ambushes. And we're seeing all these green and blue insider attacks. That's number one. And then the second point I made is the roadside bombs that, you know, we're good on strike and maneuver, but, but to just precariously, aimlessly, with no mission, just have our guys just patrolling Afghanistan. Any schlepper could just set a roadside bomb and take out our best soldiers. This is downright immoral. But now let me juxtapose this to something else. And that is, so we put our soldiers in a meat grinder. They could die at any moment. But if they do too good of a job, then we prosecute them. You want to talk about criminal justice reform? Let me talk to you about criminal justice reform, where we need it. And that's in the military code of justice as it relates to our soldiers who are accused of, ki- of doing a too good of a job killing the enemy. I mentioned last week Sergeant Ellie, uh, uh, Eddie Gallagher. And I want you guys to go to justiceforeddie.com. Justiceforeddie.com. This is a Navy SEAL, two bronze stars. He was a, he was a commander. Um, eight, eight deployments in the worst of the worst of the worst areas. 20-year veteran. He was about to retire, and he's been thrown in the brig for three months so far. Because a bunch of jealous soldiers, and he got them bad, didn't like that he was a hard charger. And very likely, not for sure, made up a story about him. So... You know, the allegation is that they're they're fighting in Mosul. And you can imagine, you're clearing ISIS from Mosul on behalf of the Shiite Iranian-backed government. So to begin with, this is the, our morality. We put them in these stupid theaters, urban warfare in Mosul, block by block, precarious as anything. So the Iraqi partners, I guess, shelled this building. And then they went in. And extracted this 15-year-old ISIS fighter, supposedly 15 years old. They brought him back to their command post. And they were working on him to do life support. Supposedly, with 20 people around as witness, Americans and Iraqis, somehow Gallagher got in there and just knifed the guy randomly on life support. According to that allegation. 
and he's been in the brig and he was indicted. I'm going to link to in show notes a Fox News article, and I give Fox credit as much as I bash them from from time to time. At least they're willing to cover this. Reports say Gallagher, dressed in uniform, did not testify during that hearing. He, Sean, and his legal team, Sean is his brother, who himself, I think, was a Navy SEAL, are denying the charges, and top Iraqi military officials also have spoken out against what is alleged to have transpired. Quote, everything that has been said is fake news in a way, Sean Gallagher told Fox and Friends. It's just complete fabrication. It's rumor. Sean also suggested his brother is in his current predicament because there were a few malcontents of guys that didn't like being reprimanded for not wanting to engage in combat. Um, Where is this? Al Jabouri added his Iraqi general there. He was in Mosul when the young ISIS fighter was captured that Gallagher is alleged to have killed. Al Jabouri said the teen was found bleeding badly from gunshot wounds with little chance of survival. One of Al Jabouri Buri's aides, Colonel Issa Kadim, Kadim, whatever, reportedly added in a separate NCIS interview that he saw SEAL medics give the fighter three bags, tubed his side, and worked on his leg when they were trying to save him in hopes of eventually targeting the team. One thing Algebra says he did not see was Gallagher attacking the wounded fighter. No, why would he do this? There was no need for this. Um, if I wanted to kill someone... I wouldn't do it in front of witnesses. There were 20-plus people out there, including several Iraqi officers. Gallagher would never do that. I don't know what the truth is here. My BS meter is up that I think it's more likely not to be true. And I've said this before. Like, I don't, You don't want our soldiers doing this, and if you believe that that means they're unstable, you do a dishonorable discharge. But if they freaking kill an ISIS fighter, I don't care if he's 15 years old. Are we going to put them away for life in prison? Then don't then don't deploy them in the first place, okay? Man, I hate this. We send them to die. We prosecute them. We bring in Iraqis and Afghanis as immigrants in the tens of thousands to endanger our country. We'll properly use our troops in combat at our own border. And there's no vision. See, one of the reasons why I succeed at this business where others fail is because I'm not a single-issue person, as you've well noticed. You have to understand the nexus of military policy, war policy, alliances, border, immigration, crime, drug trafficking, terror financing, and health care, and pain medication. Notice I, I tie all those things together, having the right vision on what we should do, what we shouldn't do. And it gives you a full picture. Politics is an art. It's not a science. But anyway, this morality really, really bothers me. I'm just um, really frustrated. And by the way, I just want to call out. um, I got two or three emails from some of you giving me your stories as chronic pain patients and what government has done to you or government's influence over the medical profession to cut off your um, pain medication. Keep, keep sending me these stories and I'm going to try to read some, you know, just blocking out your name, obviously, uh, you know, in, in the coming days, but this is another, you know, another total problem. And uh, by the way, just, just to jump back to crime a little bit, um, you know, I always talk about the fact that there's no balance in this effort. A true balanced person would say, okay, are there, is there anyone that even after the 30% reduction, even after all the jailbreaks still doesn't belong, let's narrowly target that for leniency and also go after the 20 times more number, of, uh, larger numbers of people that are under incarcerated, under sentenced or not caught at all. And one of the issues is this Johnson case from 2015 where the Supreme Court basically chucked a whole number of categories that were defined as crime of violence that are allowing a number of career criminals to get off easy and a number of criminal aliens not to be deported. So just yesterday, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals again allowed the child pornographer criminal alien to avoid deportation because pursuant to this Johnson ruling, it doesn't fit the terms of aggravated felony. Tom Cotton has a bill to fix that, along with Hatch and, and Lindsey Graham, of all people. Where is the president's support of that? Where's the president getting tough? The president said it'll be tough. 
Where's your toughness? The president said he'll be tough on rules of engagement. Where is that? And you know, Mr. President, if you want to be tough on ISIS, tough on the enemy, good for the troops, tough on combat, and do criminal justice reform it the same way, focus on what what our military criminal justice system does to railroad our soldiers. Because this happens way too often. Way too often. Oh, there's some people that are put away for too long. I'll admit to that. It ain't any of the categories of crime that the political class want to deal with. We need a very different type of criminal justice reform, just like we need a very different type of immigration reform. Which brings me to immigration, the final issue of today. On immigration, Trump's messaging needs to be one thing and one thing only. What about the forgotten man in this debate? What about the forgotten American taxpayer? Speak to the immorality of what's going on. Trump has one opportunity with this budget bill to demand to, to force the most dramatic and sustained national discussion we've had over who we are as a nation, sovereignty, security, the border, drugs, gangs, crime, welfare, the fiscal drain, the cultural problem, force a discussion over the fleecing of America on this issue. You know, a sneak peek into tomorrow's column. Well, first, before that, so Trump has two things. Everyone's like, well, Daniel, the Republicans in Congress won't do it. Well, Trump has a veto pen, and he has a bully pulpit. Use it. He should give primetime addresses. He should ask Paul Ryan to invite him to give a congressional speech about the budget bill and make his demands. And again, don't make the border wall the major issue. This is my concern. Because then it's just going to be about funding. Oh, we'll throw an extra $2 billion. But It's not a money problem. We don't need a border wall. I mean, it would help. We need a border. As I've noted, they're coming over the fence to surrender themselves because they want to get caught. It's only if we end the lawfare and they don't want to get caught, then the border wall helps deter and interdict so then they won't come. It's like saying, you know, someone got malaria and we clamor to give them an inoculation. Well, you first got to, they got it already. You got to deal with that. But worse, let's say someone has malaria and they're slitting their wrists and you're like, well, let's get give them a vaccination. Well, first stop slitting your wrist because you're going to die anyway. Whether you have a wall or not here, you know, that's in the long term. It's the asylum slash judicial control that needs to be part of it in the in the bill. And Trump needs to speak about that forgotten American. You know, I, I quote this a lot. Amity Schles wrote a classic book on the Great Depression, just debunking that the fact that FDR somehow was a hero that got us out of the Depression. And he, she, she, to, to set the tone of the book early on, <clears throat> the book is titled The Forgotten Man. And the way she explains it to talk about the redistributive policies and the progressive socialism of FDR was to use an analogy from William Graham Graham Sumner, the great 19th century philosopher from Yale, who said as follows, very interesting, um, interesting stuff. As soon as A observes something which seems to him to be wrong, from which X is suffering, A talks it over with B, and A and B then propose to get a law passed to remedy the evil and help X. Their law always proposes to determine what C shall do for X, or in the better case, what A, B, and C shall do for X. As for A and B, who get a law to make themselves do for X what they are willing to do for him, we have nothing to say except that they might better have done it without any law. But what I want to do is look up C, is to look up C. I want to show you what manner of man he is. I call him the forgotten man. What everyone's forgetting here is, everyone's getting into the details, how many are terrorists, okay, 600 of the caravan, 
are known criminals. Okay, how many are fleeing violence? Look, we already said, first of all, fleeing violence is not asylum. That would rope in every violent country. It's not true. It's an individualized persecution or as a group you're being persecuted. None of that is true in Central America. And indeed, as I noted, just in one year, the homicide rate was down 25% in in Honduras preceding the Great Migration. Most of these – the the most are actually coming from Guatemala privately, but the caravan is mainly Honduras. So that's a lie. That's an utter lie. The woman who now became famous was that picture with her kid getting the tear gas, you know, from uh, the border agents because she took her kid in the middle of the riot to charge the border, you know, middle of the border invasion. She slipped up and said, I'm just coming here for a job. I care about my kids. Oh, so you're coming for economic reasons. See, you might not hear this, but despite Trump's tough talk. 60 people a day are being processed. The caravan is being let in. I know it's at a slow pace. But like, we're not, we need to stop the hundreds of thousands that are coming privately. But the blatant invasion, we can't even categorize. No. Well, we're vetting them. They're not the criminals. But at a very minimum, they're all impoverished. That was a foundational value From our colonial laws to the state laws, it's funny, the Supreme Court in a number of 1830s and 1840s cases, when the Boston and New York City ports would literally redirect ships to disembark somewhere else so they could um, weed out any public charge, that was already borderline getting into foreign commerce and almost overstepping state boundaries. And yet the court said it was so fundamental to even state sovereignty and security that they they said it was okay. And you know, we have public charge laws for legal immigrants and yet we don't follow that either. But how is this different? You come to our border and say you want a job, what suddenly the fact that you're impoverished doesn't matter to the American people? If if A and B, these schmucks in the media want to open up a missionary in Central America and deal with the social woes there, God bless you. What right do you have? See, this is worse than what um, Professor Sumner was talking about, what Amity Schles was uh, developing her book with upon that thesis, because at least that's from one American to another. Here you're subverting and taking advantage of the forgotten American over which you're charged. It's part of the social contract to take care of. All at the hands of foreign nationals. Where's the justice in that? And again, a lot of these people, they have very problematic teenage kids. Where do you think you're having the MS-13 crisis from right around the time the Central American invasion started in 2014? So that's important to realize. They're coming in. He's letting them in. This needs to be the number one issue. But instead, 100% of freaking so-called conservative think tanks are focused on what? On jailbreak. Imagine if he gave a televised address. Harnessing the forgotten man. What about the Americans? You know. HHS just published a um, report. They sent to Congress. That so-called reuniting families. Cost 80 million dollars these very families that insidiously came here and separated themselves on their own that violated our laws again you want to talk about criminal justice we don't treat americans that way we don't care 80 million dollars who do you think paid for it why don't these virtue signalers in the media pay for it out of their own pocket but no Unbelievable. And by the way, it turns out um, DHS sent around an email that there was a 110% increase in men coming to the border with minors. 
They found over the last few months, 165 adults falsely claimed to be minors and 170 family units that were separated weren't, in fact, family members at all. 507 aliens and family units were separated because they weren't legitimate. So we're not even virtue. We're not even protecting X with C on C's dime. We're actually encouraging the cartels to do more of this and encourage child kidnapping. Thank you very much. Yet all these pseudo religious groups are buying onto jailbreak, buying onto Muslim refugees, buying onto open borders. This is the crisis we're living in. We have our resources geared towards the Soros agenda. I just don't know what to say. No one's willing to speak the truth, so I'm just going to double down on it. And that's what we do here. And by the way, I just want to tell you guys, you have senators like... What's his name? James Lankford from Oklahoma of all places. This is what we have in Oklahoma. Maniacally working on a DACA deal. That's what he's worried about. There was this... um, I forgot what it is. It was this funny conference... Kind of an open borders conference he was speaking to, and he was like, "Yeah, we 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 gotta get this done. We're we gotta 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 get this uh, taken care of." Where was this? This was um, looking just looking here. Um, do do do. It was Tom Cole too who's also a congressman from Oklahoma, terrible guy. But, uh, yes, this was the National Immigration... What are they called? Is this the is this the Soros group? I can't tell because they're all Soros groups. But, um, but anyway, James Langford spoke last week at the... Um, National Immigration Forum. It's a Soros group. And he said, quote, there is a benefit to divided government. If divided government decides to work, there are enough people on both sides of the aisle that really see this as an issue that needs to be resolved. They did, he didn't mean the border. He didn't mean taking advantage of the forgotten man. He meant bringing in more of these people in amnesty at the, uh, of the most impoverished class of people. And the people, not all of them, but among them, not an insignificant amount are the MS-13 recruits and drug traffickers. And those are the people he wants to give amnesty to. This is a Republican from Oklahoma. I don't know. I, I, look. This party is Orwellian. I keep using that word, but I have no other way of describing it. So this is what needs to happen. It all comes down to this budget bill. It's all the budget bill. It's all about lawfare. That's the number one thing. And you know, some people might say, well, it's a budget bill. That's like a policy thing. It's all about budget. What is a budget? A budget is a reflection of our values, what we fund. The most important job of the government is to protect its own citizens from the charge of foreign nationals invading. And the linchpin to that, more so than a border wall, is the lawfare. The asylum, the UAC provision, sanctuary cities, the magnets and jurisdiction stripping of the courts. Trump has a bully pulpit. He has two years till another election, and he has a veto pen, which he's never used. Remember, only eight vetoes have been overridden since Reagan. They're very uncommon. And they're usually not on major bills. So um, this is it. Unbelievable. Anyway, send me your notes as always. com. Send me your questions on jailbreak, on immigration, anything else you want addressed. We have a lot more to talk about. The week is just beginning. And our work here 
is just starting. Thank you so much. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.